Welcome to the Podglomerate. You That's think right. Nancy Pelosi is more toxic than Donald Trump? You know what? The honest answer is, in some areas of the country, yes, she is. Congressman Nancy Pelosi, good morning. Good morning. You want to respond to what yeah. you well, I mean, it's yeah. like I'm here and we're hearing all these other people. They had their time on TV. That This is such a small item. It isn't about me. Nancy Pelosi is a huge problem for Democrats. That's why you see, Julie, more than 20 Democratic candidates across the country running against Nancy Pelosi, essentially, saying we don't want her to be Speaker of the House. And Pelosi, is she good for the Republicans right where she is? Well, they've certainly run a lot of races very successfully by bringing her in, in effect, sort of nationalizing the race and saying this local candidate represents Nancy Pelosi better than he represents you. And that's been effective. I mean, Democrats under her leadership have lost a bunch of cycles. Come January, Nancy Pelosi will have led House Democrats for 16 years. For four of those years, she was the House Speaker, the only woman to ever serve in that role. She's beloved by many progressives, considered a shrewd negotiator by nearly everyone in Congress, and has raised roughly $700 million over the course of the last 16 years. She's raised over $120 million this year alone. Republicans continue to run ads tying candidates to her. And if a Democrat does say that he or she will support her to be Speaker, Republicans use that soundbite to say this Democrat will just be another loyal foot soldier for Nancy Pelosi and her liberal agenda. And even though it's 2018, and even though Donald Trump is our president, somehow, the person Democratic candidates seem to be asked about the most is Nancy Pelosi. And those questions start in a room at the Republican National Committee headquarters in 2010. I'm Matt Fuller, and this is The Wave. We were trying to figure out what to do, how to do it, and we hadn't figured out Fire Pelosi yet. Again, for those of you who listened to the first episode, that's Doug High, the former RNC communications director. Doug was actually one of the architects of the 2010 campaign to Fire Pelosi. This was coming up on the Obamacare vote in the House of Representatives and a staffer in the research department basically came up with fire Pelosi. And from there, we developed not only thought that was a good idea, but developed how we would launch that basically timed with the vote. So when the vote happened, and I may get some of these details of timing wrong, but um, I want to say that same night, because I believe the vote was at night, Michael Steele, who was the chairman, who we needed to have a good aggressive message for because he had received so much incoming called into Hannity. Uh, and basically, as he was on air, the Fire Pelosi website went live. And that was the message that drove the day. The Fire Pelosi campaign came about for, for a few reasons. One, uh, we needed a message that we could drive uh, as the committee for the upcoming months uh, into Election Day. Um, we needed a message that would galvanize our base, help raise some money. And Nancy Pelosi has been a tremendous foil for Republicans. Now, I would tell you, I also think she's a, an extremely effective majority leader or excuse me, speaker or minority leader for her party. But Republicans have an antipathy for her that has been very beneficial to us. Even Republicans acknowledge that Pelosi has been an effective leader for House Democrats. They also still see her as an effective campaign tool 
In 2010, Democrats lost 63 seats to Republicans, flipping the House. A lot of that was the backlash to President Barack Obama and Obamacare, but the iron-fisted way in which Pelosi jammed through the health care law was also unpopular, and she became a lightning rod for that controversy. Let me back up. So we launched Fire Pelosi, and we had a relatively modest goal. This was back when you would hear talk of money bombs, where basically you, you, you launch a website, it gets strong reaction, and you raise a ton of money in a very short period of time. And the problem with those is they're very hard to plan. And everybody kind of wanted then, well, this person did a money bomb, where's our money bomb? And they're hard to create of thin air. And so we were fortunate that we were able to time it with the vote for Obamacare in the House of Representatives, which obviously was not popular with Republicans. Uh, we timed it with conservative media and and so forth, launched the webpage at the same time. So our goal was, was $400,000. Uh, we ended up raising... Uh, I believe over 1.6 million. This was a big deal for us. And it showed that this is a message that could really drive home to conservatives, to Republican voters, help further motivate um, the base. And then from there, built out, uh, obviously, a bus tour. We had a banner, which hung above the RNC building. And I would say internally, this wasn't without without controversy. There were some members of the House, House of Representatives who were a little skittish on that. I remember having... and I. I won't say who on the record. I'll tell you later who. A difficult conversation with a friend of mine who's a, who was and is a friend who said that their boss didn't really like it. And um, I said, well, I'm calling to let you know what we're going to do. I'm not asking your permission. Like the, the banner's being printed. But then we we devised a bus tour that went through uh, the continental 40, 48 states that put Chairman Steele on the bus for... If not all 48, he had to leave the tour twice for two or three days at a time to attend fundraisers, uh, to see his family, obviously. But basically, we, no, not basically, we put that bus in all 48 states. So eight years after driving a bus around the country vilifying Nancy Pelosi, Republicans are still running a similar campaign, and they still think this is a good issue for them. Um, but Pelosi's a, a very valuable message for, for Republicans as they want to stave off the possibility of her becoming speaker again. But no one seems exactly sure how good of an issue it is for Republicans. I recently watched a debate between Republican Dave Bratt and his Democratic challenger Abigail Spanberger, a race we're going to profile in a different episode. And Bratt managed to mention Nancy Pelosi 21 times during the hour and a half debate. It was so noticeable that the audience was eventually groaning every time Bratt said Pelosi's name. Everybody knows where the spending problem is, and it's on the failed Pelosi agenda on the other side of the aisle. And if I can finish my phrase without... The groans got me wondering, when does this backfire for Republicans? Aren't voters tired of hearing about Nancy Pelosi? Is there a chance Republicans are falling into a trap for Democrats? I don't think it's incredibly effective. That's Drew Hamill, Nancy Pelosi's deputy chief of staff. He's been with Pelosi for 12 years now, and he's had a front row seat for all the Republican and Democratic efforts to dethrone Pelosi. We see in polls after poll after poll um, in this cycle... Um, over August and September that uh, people don't, I mean, people aren't particularly interested in how a candidate's views, what their views are on Nancy Pelosi. I mean, we've seen Washington Post, ABC, um, CNN. I mean, it's just, it's very low on the list. Um, people are much more concerned about where a candidate is on Trump, and they're much more concerned about what their plans are for health care and the economy. I think they think that it motivates their base. I don't think, uh, I mean, we've seen poll after poll that um, it's not particularly, um, it's not moving independence. It's not moving uh, 
Democrats anywhere. Um, Stan Greenberg had good research um, earlier this earlier in September that basically tested um, some of uh, Trump's language about Pelosi and like, does that even work among Republicans? And he found it's not. It's not moving people. So this strategy really is just uh, something that I think um, shows their desperation, but it also shows that they've been successful in getting the press to ask the question. We've heard this argument a lot, and it's almost it's a little tautological that, well, it must be effective because Republicans keep doing it. Republicans do a lot of things that are totally ineffective. There's a number of Republican pollsters who... Dave Winston, for one, who keep on urging them to talk about the economy and talk about what they've done, allegedly done for the economy, uh, you know, namely, obviously, talk about the tax bill. I think that's been a tremendous failure for them, and, and they have not been able to run on that. And I think that's why they, they, they go to sort of the desperate place of, of running on Nancy Pelosi. It's true. This issue might not be as effective as it once was. And it's not just Pelosi's most loyal staffer who thinks that. Even one of Pelosi's biggest critics in the Democratic Party thinks Democrats could be helped with Pelosi at the top. And they've, they've been very clear um, in their position. That's Representative Tim Ryan, the Ohio Democrat who ran against Pelosi at the end of 2016 to become the House Minority Leader. Ryan lost, and even though he's been emphatic that Pelosi is hurting Democrats in their efforts to retake the House, he sees at least some benefit from Pelosi, as long as candidates say they don't support her. And... You know, it seems like it's really benefiting them because this is a change election. So the ones in which you're saying, you say, I'm not going to support her, you think that's a positive for them? Yeah, they look independent. I mean, it's actually an opportunity for them to look strong, independent, you know, above, hey, i got to be with this team or on this, you know, with this party all the time. And so I think in this kind of election, when you're running in a, in a moderate to red district, it's, it's a really good thing. And these close races, uh, being clear is really important. And, you know, the only person that can make that judgment is the candidate. Like, they have to make that judgment. Do they want to say, absolutely not, I'm not voting for uh, Leader Pelosi, or I'll wait till I get there. Democratic leaders seem to get the position that some Democrats are in. Pelosi herself advised candidates to just win, baby meaning they should answer questions about whether they'd support her in the best way for their campaign. What's your advice to, to Democrats in that situation? Well, I tell them if they're worrying about, you know, who they're going to vote for, you know, for ideally speaker, then they're worrying about the wrong things. That's California Democrat Eric Swalwell. He's a bit of a rising star in the Democratic Party. He's one of the youngest members of Democratic leadership in the House. That's a problem that would be great to have, but it's not the problem you have right now. The problem you have right now is that you are not a member of Congress. And we want you to be a member of Congress, have that problem, but focus on what you need to do uh, to win and not not get mired in the, you know, will you support Leader Pelosi or not? Just focus on what you need to do to win and promise your constituents that you'll, you'll vote in the way that best serves them. And I, I think constituents get that. But we hear from Republicans and we have another one who came on the show on Monday was saying how effective this really is, that the in, a, in a, an election where there aren't a there isn't really a, a single Republican message, this is one you know they've been doing for eight years where they can unite their base, bring people out to vote, and he's just another vote for Nancy Pelosi. Um, I mean, how do you combat that and, and not sound like you know th the answer you gave is one that Democrats will give, which is um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know who's running, you know, that I'm not worried about that election. I'm worried about this one like yeah. those, but it, it, it comes off to a lot of people who have voted traditionally Republican who might not like Nancy Pelosi as sort of mealy mouthed. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think the, for a lot of those folks, they're never going to vote for a Democrat anyway. And I, I think Democrat, we shouldn't believe that if Nancy Pelosi stepped aside today and said, she's not going to run that the Republicans would say, Oh, you know, you guys, we're not going to, we're going to pull all of our ads. We're actually going to tell our candidates to drop out and support the Democrats. And we're going to uh, canonize, you know, whoever you choose uh, as the leader uh, because they're not Pelosi. I mean, these folks took Max Cleland and made him a terrorist, right? A, a Vietnam War veteran, uh, amputee, triple amputee. And they made him a terrorist in the 2002 midterms. They, they showed pictures of him with Osama bin Laden. As America faces terrorists and extremist dictators, Max Cleland runs television ads claiming he has the courage to lead. He says he supports President Bush. Basically, Swallow is saying if it's not Pelosi, Republicans will go after whoever is next. We're seeing similar tactics to the Max Cleland ad this cycle. Republican Duncan Hunter has been going after his Democratic challenger, Amar Kampanajar, in a blatantly false and Islamophobic campaign to suggest Kampanajar is a terrorist. Amar Kampanajar is working to infiltrate Congress. He's used three different names to hide his family's ties to terrorism. His grandfather masterminded the Munich Olympic massacre. His father said they deserve to die. And the Paul Ryan-aligned Congressional Leadership Fund has also run its fair share of race-baiting and misleading ads like one saying Democratic candidate Aftab Pureval is selling out Americans, or one hitting New York Democrat Antonio Delgado because he was once a rapper. When you ask Democrats about Nancy Pelosi, I mean, what's that conversation like? I don't think anyone likes a Pelosi question. That's Heather Cagle. She covers House Democrats for Politico, and she's one of the best source reporters on Pelosi's struggles. She's been asking Democrats in Congress the Pelosi question a lot. You know, I think that there is a lot of admiration for her. She has been the Democratic leader for 16 years uh, going on. It'll be 16 at the end of this year, right? And so people look at that and they look at what she's accomplished in that time. She really delivered for President Obama. And, you know, there's a lot of reverence there, um, especially for Democratic women candidates. I think that they are in a tougher position because we are in the year of the woman again, right? And why would they want to say something negative about the only woman that we've ever seen as Speaker of the House that has managed to stay atop of, you know, very at times fractured caucus for, you know, 16 years, possibly more at this point. So I think that they are more hesitant to say negative things about her for obvious reasons. If Pelosi is going to survive, Democrats are going to have to win at least more than 30 seats. And depending on who you ask, that number could be as high as 40, maybe even higher. Essentially, it might take a true wave to save Nancy Pelosi. In the past couple of months, a lot of people on the Hill think that she will be Speaker again. And people that before in the summer had really doubted that, especially when a lot of these candidates started coming out in a flood and saying, I'm not going to support Pelosi or I'm not going to, I think we should have new leadership, things like that. Things that look very negative for her. The tide seems to have turned in her favor in the past six to eight weeks. Do you think it depends, though, on what the majority looks like or if there's a majority, obviously? Absolutely. If if they don't win the majority, I think that the common wisdom is that she is gone. She retires. If they do win, I think that people have 
a number, a range in mind. So the common number that I hear is if Democrats pick up the majority and then win 15 to 20 extra seats, then she's automatically speaker. If they only win about five seats, then she has a real problem on her hands. Just looking at this, there's a lot of wiggle room for a lot of these candidates who've said, I'm not going to support Nancy Pelosi. But, you know, as you know, that might mean I'm not going to support Nancy Pelosi in the closed door election. Those people could still sort of come around. What do you think is the number? You're saying 38 to 40 basically seats that you'd have to win before Nancy Pelosi is pretty got a you know a nice lock on this. But anywhere in that range of you know they pick up 30 seats, even 35, that's a real danger zone for her, right? If we do the math, they have to win 23 to win back the majority, right? And then you're saying if they only win about 12 more, then you know she has an issue. And I I think that that's fair. I think allies of her think that the magic number is eight, which is kind of random because, you know, you would think 10 to 12. Um, People that don't support her but think she will be speaker seem to say the magic number is 15 to 20. And that's on top of the 23, right? So that's where we are. I think the thing to watch is that we have a caucus vote at the end of November, and all she has to do is win a simple majority. And then you have a vote on the floor on January 3rd, or shortly thereafter, right? And in theory, most Democrats should vote for her on the floor, even if they didn't vote for her on, in caucus. But she that means she has about a month to buy out, buy off all of the Democrats who didn't support her in caucus and promise them committees or, you know, special assignments. What kind of platforms do you want? How can I get your vote on the floor? And so the real chaos, if there were to be any, and I'm not saying there will be, would be the floor vote. It's not going to be the caucus vote. Of course, to hear Drew Hamill break down these numbers, Pelosi is much safer. I think these things are proportional. You look at the candidates who have said uh, certain things about how they would vote. Uh, typically those those candidates are in very deep red places, places that are, uh, you know, say R plus five or more, right? Deep red districts, districts, frankly, that, you know, nobody thought we'd have any business being competitive in, um, you know, even a year ago. And uh, I, I, th- I think what we'll see on election day is uh, a certain sort of sliding scale. The more of those candidates that win, that means that a larger wave, a larger wave, and you have more numbers anyway. Exactly, precisely. So, what is sort of the number in your thinking that is well, the danger zone? I'm not going to get into predicting numbers, but I think uh, if the election were tomorrow, um, you know, it looks very, very good. Three weeks out, it looks very, very good. Hamill might be right that Pelosi can survive this, but no one knows where the Democratic leadership races stand until the dust settles after the election. By NBC News' account, there are over 50 Democrats running for Congress who say they won't support Pelosi to be Speaker. Of course, not all of them will win, and many of those that do win will have that wiggle room. But if you're trying to make sense of all the trouble Pelosi seems to be in, contrasted with the confidence coming from Pelosi land, consider this anecdote. During my interview with Drew Hamill, Nancy Pelosi called him. The name that came up on his phone? Speaker Pelosi. Take that for whatever it's worth to you. I would actually say that Pelosi doesn't come up very much, to be perfectly honest. That's Laura Barone Lopez, a reporter for the Washington Examiner who's also been closely following House Democrats. She's essentially owning the Pelosi beat for conservative media and doing it in a fair way. At only one town hall out of all that I have gone to this cycle, 
has has a has an actual constituent asked where the candidates stood on Pelosi and if they would support her. But what makes it play in in the races is the fact that Republicans cut these ads that that say that paint Pelosi as this liberal West Coast villain. You would vote with Pelosi to raise taxes. Before you vote, do your research. Nancy Pelosi has. That's why Pelosi's financing Lisa Brown's campaign. Same values, same liberal record. The truth is, Nancy Pelosi's friends are bankrolling Ossoff's campaign because Ossoff will rubber stamp her liberal agenda. And it's effective, although, you know, recent polling will show that Trump probably puts a damper on how effective it is because his star shines a little bit brighter than Pelosi's now. But I think that's why there's so many questions about her. Why do you think Republicans think it's such a good topic for them that they keep on bringing up year after year? They keep on bringing up Pelosi because it's easier to attack one person as opposed to like the whole group. And Pelosi has been around for so long and is so well known now. Uh, You know, she is this national figure. You know, she created this this persona for herself. Um, And because of that, you know, she's a female, which definitely adds to it uh and because of that uh she's a californian it's just everything that they could possibly want you know uh she's a female she's californian she has ties to you know hollywood and really wealthy people and um it makes for a very effective boogie woman if you will why do you think nancy pelosi's still here I mean, she's she's ruled atop the Democratic caucus since, since 2003. Um, you know, it's clear that she's at least cost Democrats some seats. I mean, v- very clearly this last special election with Danny O'Connor, uh, we're talking, you know, a thousand votes in, in a district that uh, is very difficult. But certainly him sort of bungling the Pelosi question on Chris Matthews contributed to his loss. What about Nancy Pelosi? The first vote you have to cast when you become a member of Congress is to vote for the leader of your party that's nominated for speaker. Who are you going to vote for for speaker? I don't know who's going to run, but I know... Pelosi's running for re-election. We we need change. We need change on both sides. So you're not voting for Pelosi? No. Well, how are you going to help the Democrats get the 218 they knew to win the House? You have to be one of the votes. Yeah, we, we So what are you going to do? If you're one of the 218 they need to take control of the House, and the, and the vote on the floor is Pelosi, what are you going to do? Well, we need to If it's a decisive vote, would you vote against Pelosi? We if it's need, decisive. We need new leadership you're, you're on both sides. It. You know you have to decide this. Just but tell we, me you know you have to decide it. No, but we need new leadership. No, just tell me you the know. The old ways aren't working. No. You know that for the Democrats can get control, you have to have 218 members of the House Absolutely. vote for the candidate of the Democratic Party for Speaker. I would you support do that? whoever the Democratic Party Thank you. Forward. Danny O'Connor. What does she still have here to do? You know, what, 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 why is she still in Congress? Her argument, if you ask her, is she says that had Hillary Clinton won the election in 2016, she was going to retire. Here's Heather Cagle again. But since Hillary didn't win, there would have been no other woman at the leadership table. And it's important to have at least one woman. Now, not all Democrats in the caucus buy that. They don't think that she would have left had Clinton won or not. I think that Pelosi, having covered her for more than two years now, I think she really does think that she is the best person to lead this caucus. She is the best person to be speaker if they win back the House. She is the best person to take on Trump. 
And part of that is that she's been around so long that other folks who could have risen up in the ranks and could have been leader didn't have the opportunity and they left. We saw people like Chris Van Hollen. He ran for the Senate instead. You know, Javier Becerra went to be attorney general in California. Joe Crowley, who was seen as her next successor, he lost a primary race this year. And so you have a Democratic caucus who looks around. And for many of these members, probably a majority, this is the only leader that they know. I think she's very effective at her job. Again, Doug High. She knows her membership very well. She keeps them, you know, in line, I think, very well. Now, I would also question at the same time, why are the top three still there? You've seen a lot of um, Democrats leave uh, basically because they can't go up. There are a lot of good young Democrats who are eager to take positions of leadership. And the, this kind of trio of Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn have been around so long that you know when, when Joe Crowley lost, everybody was shocked that the new guy on the block lost when he'd been here for 20 years. But again, I, I, I think I have nothing but respect for Pelosi and, and how she does you know, her job, she's very effective at it. She's a tremendous fundraiser. Uh, she works her tail off. And I think a lot of her members, you know, respond to that. Also, there, there's a very real existential question here as to whether or not Nancy Pelosi is going to be the next speaker or not. You know, given the way that the House races look right now, it, it seems not just possible, I'd say likely. Um, this is something that's going to rally Republican voters. I remember in, in 2004, uh, when I was working for Richard Burr's campaign in North Carolina, um, our closing message was about how our opponent, Erskine Bowles, uh, was chief of staff for Bill Clinton. And you would think that four years after Bill Clinton was uh, no longer president, um, that that wouldn't be as potent a message um, as it would have two years or, or certainly in 2000. It was still a potent message. And with Nancy Pelosi still on the scene, still giving the weekly press conferences um, when, when the House is in session, um, she is a, a real flashpoint for Republicans that they respond to. Do you think that that is tempered a little bit, though, because it seems like Democrats, a lot of this are appealing to their own, their own basis, that they're not necessarily trying to win over independence. I mean, some of some of them are. There are a lot of districts where you have to do that to win. But a lot of this is, hey, let's just turn out our voters. Republicans, you can turn out your voters, but we're, we're guessing that you're not going to, you know, whether it's a combination of Trump, whether it's a combination of those people just don't think they have to vote or are just fed up with the Republican Party or fed up with Trump. It's just basically, let's just turn on our people, you turn on your people, and let's see what happens. Yeah, I, I think that's that's by and large true. And you know, th there are a lot of headwinds um, going in, into, into the election for Republicans. You know, by comparison, at the RNC in 2010, our magic number for Obama was 46%. We felt if he was below that, that we would win the House on Election Day. He was at 45. Um, obviously, Donald Trump is well below that. This is going to be a very tough election for Republicans. But at the same time, if this, if this is about motivating their voters to turn out, the very real possibility of a Pelosi speakership uh, is something that, that I think the, the RNC and the NRCC you know, are right to respond to. And it also has the benefit of, and I think the, um, the communications team, Matt Gorman and Jesse Hunt at NRCC, have been really strong on highlighting the number of Democrats who say they won't support Pelosi, but actually may support Pelosi. And it, so it's also, you know, causing some ripples um, within those Democratic districts or, you know, those Democratic challengers um, in a way that wasn't necessarily the same for, for us um, in 2010. So they do have an extra opportunity there. 
I mean, I think the plural of anecdote is not data, and that's something my boss says over and over again. I think what we've seen over and over again is candidates telling us that the only time this question comes up is from Republicans and from national media. That's Drew Hamill. I mean, I think the number one thing that people need to remember is what we hear from candidates over and over again is that this, this issue does not come up when they're walking the precincts, when they're meeting with constituents, when they're, you know, having those conversations with potential voters. Um, this is something that uh, the Republican cam- campaign committee has um, focused a lot of time in getting reporters to ask uh, candidates about it. And it, to me, it's it's more surprising that um, reporters aren't asking Republicans which of their candidates for speaker they're going to vote for because of the such an obviously flawed field. You have a philanderer, a guy who spoke to the Klan, and the Joe Paterno of Congress, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, and Jim Jordan. Um, that contrast compared to Nancy Pelosi, an Italian-American grandmother of nine, is a very stark contrast. So are we in the media making a mistake by focusing on Pelosi so much? I don't know if we're making a mistake. I think that... Again, Laura Barone-Lopez. You know, I think both things can be true, right? Which is that she doesn't have the same effect she used to in races. I think that she, at one point, could maybe sway voters, you know, in the way Republicans used her in these ads. I don't think it's as effective this cycle as it used to be for the variety of reasons. The other thing that is true is that she is facing more challenges to her leadership, I think, than she ever has before. So as reporters, we're going to cover that because uh, there are far more uh, current members, Democratic members, who are talking about it than ever have before. They would have never mentioned it before. And now they're out there openly speculating that depending on the number of Democrats that win, that she could be in trouble. We've seen now... You know, well over two dozen. I'm not even sure what the number is, but and it's hard to count because everyone has sort of differing amounts of wiggle room on this. But all these Democratic candidates saying, "I'm not going to support Pelosi." Uh, what do you make of that? You know, is this real, or um, it, does that effectively buffer them from the Pelosi criticism at all? I mean, you know, if you say I'm not going to support her, yeah, does that just issue go away? In the case of uh, Connor Lamb, the one, uh, the Democrat who ran in Pennsylvania 18 and now is running in a different district because of the redistricting, I think the fact that he paid for an ad that said, I am not voting for Pelosi, helped him. He, it, it did provide a buffer for him. I think that other candidates who have cut ads saying something similar will help them. Right off the bat, it tells the voter, look, I'm not messing around. This is where I stand. In Connor Lamb's district alone, I think at least 60% of the ads that they ran were focused on, you know, tying him to Pelosi. Connor Lamb, fresh face or two-faced? Lamb won't admit he's a Pelosi liberal. The truth? Lamb won't protect seniors in Medicare. He supports Pelosi's massive Medicare cuts. And Lamb is weak. He had to come out with his own commercial, which was kind of the first that we've seen. He put up his own ad explicitly saying, 
this is what Republicans are saying. It's not true. I won't support her. And after he did that and he won the election, we saw several other candidates look at that playbook and say, maybe it's not enough to just say in these newspaper interviews, oh, I, you know, I think we need new leadership. Maybe I need to be more explicit and then I'll win my race. Coming up, we're going to talk to Connor Lamb, the only Democrat who has won a seat to Congress during Donald Trump's presidency. So one thing that was successful for you is right at the get-go, Rick Saccone had said, this is another vote for Nancy Pelosi. And then you said very promptly, well, I'm not going to support Nancy Pelosi for speaker. I mean, how much did that play a role? How much were voters willing to listen to you more because you said, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm a no on Pelosi here? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I mean, I said that pretty early in the campaign because I believe it. That's Connor Lamb, the only Democrat who won a special election leading up to these midterms. Essentially, as there are vacancies in the House, there are special elections held to finish out terms. Lamb won in an R plus 11 district in the Partisan Voting Index. If you listen to our last podcast, we talked a lot about PVI. Lamb is an extremely strong Democratic candidate. He was a Marine officer, he was a prosecutor, and as you'll hear, he's really good at very pleasantly wiggling out of a question. Uh, to me, it's it has really nothing to do with her personally and everything to do with the fact that uh, when someone's been in charge of an organization for a long time, whether it's the United States Congress or, you know, a Marine infantry battalion or a, you know, small company, uh, if they are not achieving the results year over year that you want, uh, it's time for a change in leadership. It's time to refresh things. And I feel that way about the House of Representatives right now. Um, so we started talking about that early in the campaign, that that was one thing we could offer is, is a change, uh, both at the bottom and the top. Uh, so I think that helped because that seems to be what people want, at least in my district. I mean, it's been sort of a bludgeon, though, for so many for so long that, you know, Republicans will say he's just going to be another vote for Nancy Pelosi. And people can't look past that just because of their own sort of partisan hatred of, of Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I, I guess is, is this just a hack for Democrats to get through to those voters? Do you say, you know, I'm, I'm, look, I'm not supporting her. Listen to what else I everything else I have to say. Um, I guess we'll find out, you know, race by race, how it turns out. I think in our situation, I did everything I could to just speak straight to the issues on the ground. And so a lot of the attacks that you're mentioning uh, were things that had nothing to do with the people of Western Pennsylvania and their problems. And they had everything to do with this kind of, you know, national partisan agenda that they've been pushing and that Paul Ryan's been writing about in his books for a long time. Um, and I, I think... We were successful in part uh, because we just kind of kept our eye on the ball and said, the position that I'm running for here is representative. Uh, and so let's talk about the problems that we need representation on here and uh, you know how we can fix them. I asked Lamb repeatedly about Pelosi. And while he's clear he will not support her to be speaker, he's definitely very careful about the question. For the record, we asked Congressman Keith Rothfuss to be on the podcast. And while he was initially enthusiastic about appearing, his campaign leader said they couldn't find any time for the interview. Eventually, I started trailing Rothfuss to and from House votes, and it was pretty clear he was avoiding me, either by taking calls or just telling me he was too busy to even do a walk-and-talk interview. Here's what that sounds like. 
you're, I knew we were trying to make time. Do you don't you don't want to talk at all? Okay. I mean, she said it was just a timing issue. Is it not? Timing issue. Yeah. I'm swamped. Can we even just do a walk and talk on the way back? I got stuff I'm working on right now. Do you even want to just say the the part that you told me before? Just the part that you thought. What you said to me before, I can honestly just take that, which was. Talk to Anna. All right. I have a pretty good idea what Congressman Keith Rothfuss would say about Connor Lamb, mostly because we had a conversation off tape but still on the record where he laid out what he would say. Essentially, he'd point out that while Lamb says he won't support Pelosi, he still votes with her nearly 90% of the time. So I asked Lamb what he'd say to that charge. And you know what every, you know, the Republican's going to say in your district every time you say, well, I'm not supporting Nancy Pelosi is... Well, actually, look at his voting record. He's, you know, he's with Nancy Pelosi 95% of the time, or, right? I mean, what do you say to that, um, that charge? I'll just defend each and every vote that I've made as being good for the people of the 18th. Uh, that was what I said I would do, uh, and that's what I've done throughout this campaign. And so, um, you know, I've, I've voted the same way as the Democrats sometime. I voted the same way as the administration plenty of times. I mean, I think I have one of the higher levels of... Uh, consistency with administration policy of any House Democrat as well. Um, and again, it just depends on the issue. And, you know, so far, people have been willing to hear me out on that. And, you know, I think people are definitely have an open mind. Like I said, he very pleasantly doesn't give you the quotes you want. So what are we to make of all this? How effective of a campaign issue is Nancy Pelosi? How much of a media creation is this? And how much trouble is Pelosi really in with her caucus? It's tough to say before an election, but we know that Republicans have effectively run on Pelosi in previous races. Democrats and independents might not care very much, but it's driving at least some Republican votes. And in districts where there are more Republicans than Democrats, getting GOP voters to the polls is important. To say Pelosi hasn't cost Democrats any seats would be to ignore the 2010 wave or more recent examples like Danny O'Connor. But we also can't ignore the help Pelosi has provided Democrats. Her massive fundraising halls have to be considered, and she has been a strategic genius for years inside of Congress. As far as how much we should blame the media for fueling the anti-Pelosi fervor, it's a fair question. We've probably played a role, but Republicans are the ones who started this campaign, and in some districts, it really does matter. Democrats themselves fed into this by using their opposition to Pelosi as a shortcut toward proving their independence. That shortcut might have finally caught up with Pelosi, as a floor vote for Speaker to me looks pretty difficult, but no one should ever count her out. I will say, it's pretty clear that if it weren't Pelosi, Republicans would just pick a new villain. For the Democrats who have come out against her, the ones who may have effectively neutralized the issue, people like Connor Lamb, there's always another boogeywoman. During a recent debate between Lamb and Rothfuss, Nancy Pelosi didn't come up. Rothfuss had plenty of chances. He was even asked about a mailer that put Lamb and Pelosi's faces next to each other. But Rothfuss didn't take the bait. Instead, he brought up another controversial Democrat, Maxine Waters, and said voting for Lamb would lead to a Democratic majority which would relentlessly investigate Donald Trump. Basically, this phenomenon started long before Nancy Pelosi, and it will last long after her. On our next episode, we're going to talk about Donald Trump, the way he's changing politics in Congress. I hope you'll listen next week to The Wave. 
We'd like to thank Doug High, Drew Hamill, Heather Cagle, Laura Barone-Lopez, and Representatives Tim Ryan, Eric Swalwell, and Connor Lamb. This episode was produced by Chris Boniello and Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate, and me, Matt Fuller of HuffPost. Music in this episode was produced by Breakmaster Cylinder and Jim Jaguar and Zach Forsberg-Larry. If you like the songs in this episode, you can check out Jim and Zach's music at isthmusandthelisps.com. And be sure to check out HuffPost's newest podcast, Cut the Noise, launching soon. Universe.